as an investor, the investing public is at risk of having huge reallocations of how we value companies. Uh, that'll have an impact on any company that has a big balance sheet of carbon emitting assets. Yeah, and potentially uh, could the power company sort of quote unquote be stuck with them and not, ne- not necessarily stranded cost, they could potentially face a situation where they have this bad pun dinosaur <laughs> and they're trying to get the rest of us to pay up for it. And we said, well, we told you we didn't want to pay for it. And now you're forcing us. We don't want it in our rate base. Thanks for agreeing to be on the show and uh, to answer some of our questions. And I guess, uh, are you ready to start? Sure. Great. Well, I guess maybe just start off uh, introducing yourself, uh, yourself to uh, our listeners and, um, yeah, just who you are and, and, and uh, your history. Well, thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm David Ewer. I've been uh, living in Helena since 1985 and spent my career in state government. Uh, and included uh, serving eight years in the Montana House of Representatives. I represented downtown Helena as a Democrat. So from 1992 through 2000, I was in the House. Uh, In 2005, I served as budget director under Governor Brian Schweitzer. So from 2005 and 2011, I was budget director. And then after that, I served as the executive director of the Montana Board of Investments, which invests all the state's money from 2012 2018. Uh, I've got a degree in economics from Northeastern University, and I received my master's in city and regional planning from Harvard University. Oh, wow. Well, that's, uh, that's quite an introduction. Um, I guess we should introduce ourselves. I'm Ryan Kissinger. I work as a medical illustrator, and that, that is a real job. Um, Max, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. My name is Max. I'm a farmer. Uh, I grow a lot of vegetables in River Valley County and ship actually food, uh, as far as Helena. So great. Yeah. Maybe I'll see you in the neighborhood sometime. (laughs) And then I'm Daniel Carlino and I live in Missoula and I'm running for the Montana public service commission, which has got me interested in talking to you about the deregulation of Montana power. So um, people that have lived in Montana for a long time definitely know about this from the rate increases and so on and so forth. But Montana power deregulation really left um, the energy in Montana to the free market afterwards. And that de- deregulation seemed to happen really fast with a, with different influences. And it left a lot of Montanans um, in financial ruins. And it really jacked up the prices for Montana Power ever since. So I was hoping that you could take take us through a, a brief history of how that was for you on the legislature at the time of deregulation and just uh, let our listeners who aren't familiar with the deregulation of Montana Power hear a little bit about what was going on at the time. Sure. The push for electric deregulation in Montana 
was quite a bit different than the push for deregulation in California. And it might be better to start with California at a somewhat of a, a brief nat, uh, national perspective. Uh, the concept of deregulation started under the Carter administration with the deregulation of airlines. Pretty much a positive phenomenon, I think, for most people. Continued after that with the deregulating of the uh, telephone utilities, and I think that uh, while that wasn't quite in full swing in the 90s, still was leaving people with a positive uh, impression. And I, I lay this because I think it helps explain why there might not have been as much public pushback on deregulation in Montana as you might have expected. So in the early 90s, um, in California, electric prices were high. Uh, there was a, a number of reasons for this. Uh, part of it was recovering expenses for expensive nuclear power plants. And the large industrial users um, were uh, getting annoyed about high prices. And then in the 90s, a, a and there was a beginning of a new technological shift with highly powerful and efficient uh, natural gas fire generators. And people were looking at the prospects of having cheaper power if it could be deregulated in California. Uh, at the same time, the Federal Energy Regula Regulatory Commission, known as FERC, was exploring and eventually opening up uh, the tr wholesale transmission of power in America, those great big massive uh, high tension lines you occasionally see to uh, competition and choice by large users who were utilities. It's important to note they were not talking about individual customers having choice. Um, that's a that's a point I'm going to come back to later on. And so in 1995 and 1996, the Montana Power Company let the public know that they would be going around the state to talk about their vision of the future and the prospects of maybe deregulating that uh, the, the power uh, system in Montana and that change was coming. And so uh, I started studying the issue. And in the uh, session of 1997, although it was late in the session for the introduction of bills, the Montana Power Company dropped in to uh, the legislative process a very large, complicated bill that frankly gave them almost all the advantages and disadvantaged um, customers without a very strong underlying rationale for support. And that rational support looked very different in Montana than in California. In California, you had rate payers such as high, uh, such as large industry, paying essentially the highest rates of electricity in America. Homeowners were paying about 13 cents per kilowatt. Um, in Montana, we had the fifth lowest power in the nation. It was under six cents. Wow. Right. And so the whole premise of deregulation didn't have an evident payoff uh, for Montanans. The question I tried to pose is, why do we want choice to pay more? Why shouldn't we keep a good thing here, right? i.e. cheap power? So the bill went through. I was the lead opponent. 
and uh, I made several points. And the power company and its allies, one of the first points they said was change was coming. We needed to get in front of it. And the proponents, as I remember, I'm going to qualify a little bit because it's been almost 20 years, but they wrongly said that we would be facing change if we didn't do something. And at least the implication or maybe the direct statement was something about, well, look what's doing it's FERC, conveniently ignoring that FERC was not setting up choice by individual users, regardless of size. They were talking about potentially the choice of if you were a utility company to have choice on transmission lines. Uh, that, um, that didn't really impact uh, the status quo in Montana. Uh, the large industrial users in Billings who supported the bill really still would only have um, two choices uh, under regulatory environment. They would either buy their power under regulated environment or they could self-generate. Nobody does that. So that's uh, that, uh, that bill, which is a long, complicated bill that gave almost all the advantages to the power company. And it had an important wrinkle in it. It's a complicated one. Um, we can get into it more length. But uh, what it did was it gave the power company the ability to set a cost, a fee against ratepayers to recover costs that they called stranded. And um, that's unfortunately a very important concept, even though it's a bit arcane. And the idea was that in California, the notion of recovering uneconomic uh, assets in a deregulated environment, i.e. recovering stranded costs, the best example is an expensive above market nuclear power company. Well, we don't have nuclear power plants in Montana. Montana Power argued that they had hundreds of millions, maybe a billion dollars in stranded costs. They had a couple of above market generations. They did something called qualified facilities. There was at least three of them. They didn't supply much of the baseload to the Montana Power. After 1997, in the summer of 1997, the Montana Power Company tried through the, the, the whole uh, process through the PSC to establish effectively a new tax. And interestingly, this is where the convergence of the Montana Power Company and the large uh, industrial users who had been proponents of this bill, they went and odds at each other. They said, you know, we like the notion of choice, but we don't want to be paying that tax for standard cost. Mm -hmm. And that precipitated the Montana Power Company eventually uh, in late uh, 1998 to throw it up its hands. Yes, it was actually 19, uh, the end of 19, uh, December of 1997, throw up its hands and said, okay, we can't agree on this, this charge. Uh, we will sell the assets. And that's when you have on December the 10th of 1997, the power company announcing that it would sell the assets. So I'm going to stop here because there's more to it, but let me see if you want to ask uh, questions up to where I've got you now, which is when the power company didn't get its way decided to sell all of its all of its generation assets in Montana.
Actually, I generally like the uh, way the, the conversation is progressing. We had some other questions uh, prepared, but I'll leave it up to you to uh, continue uh, the discussion in whatever way you think will be most helpful for our audience. It might be helpful just to finish out the story as I left it. Yeah. Uh, because in the session, the power company said we were always going to be in Montana that we'd be basically under a deregulated environment, that customers would have choice, that would be the opportunity for cheaper power. They didn't tell you how you'd get your cheaper power. Mm-hmm. They just said the prospects of cheaper power that nobody asked for as far as citizens. So the assets were sold to Pennsylvania Power and Light and, um, and Montana Power received um, something on the order of $600 million for the assets. And uh, through these years, they had um, gotten, uh, I think kind of stumbled into this telephone deregulation technology evolution yeah. uh, with fiber optics and Touch America. And um, the 90s, you had this really new heavy razzmatazz about um, the prospects of the personal computer being in your home, hooked up to it. Now, it seems all hold hat now 25 years later, but that was all pretty much embryonic in the 1990s. And there was uh, a real competitive force. Who was going to have um, monopoly pricing power for fiber optics? In those days, the debate hadn't settled as to where the action was going to be. Was it content? Was it, uh, was it infrastructure? You know, we know 25 years later that, uh, it's not only content is king, but it's your own personal data. That's king. data is king now, but, uh, Montana power, um, you know, didn't have the proverbial crystal ball. They had the makings of a multi-state, fiber optic line and they thought that having that um, electro- electrical pipeline as such would be uh, their ticket to touch America. Mm-hmm. And as we know today, that went bust and the company went bust. So now we get back roundabout to your question, uh, who did it affect the most? Uh, the first fallout of deregulation ironically, was the largest industrial users who, um, because of um, some interesting um, phenomena of deregulation, both in Montana and the manipulation of the energy markets by Enron in California, found themselves without firm power contracts, which resulted in... um, the um, some of these companies, large companies, have to shut down, and so they got burned the worst. The bill had been amended, the uh, DREG, to give Montana ordinary customers protection from DREG for an additional two years. So ordinary Montanans really didn't get caught with the spike. So when Montana Power Company collapsed, the the, uh, the first group that was hurt pretty badly were the large industrial users. Mm. And then over the time after PPL 
had to recoup its rates by what it paid for. And uh, they sold off to Northwestern and Northwestern came in and out of bankruptcy. And what we've seen is this piecemeal um, pull back into mostly a regulated environment, but with the consequences that we no longer enjoy cheap power. We now have the most expensive power in our region. Um, it's, you know, I forget what it is, eight or nine cents or maybe 10 cents, but it's, it's a lot more than that we were paying. And so we no longer have the fifth cheapest power uh, in, in America, nowhere close to it. And, um, and sort of interject, go ahead. interject uh, would that price have gone up with inflation anyways? I mean, or, or it, or across the country, uh, those prices have remained fixed, but Montana's power has, has risen. Well, I think you can argue that, that there would have been some inflation price increase, but I think it is absolutely demonstrable that the, uh, that deregulation caused higher prices for Montana. It's for a couple of reasons uh, that I hope make some sense. First of all, the generation assets that the power of the Montana power company had, um, they had been, they had been paid for right. by ratepayers. They were, the dams were, they had, so, so whenever you, when they sold those for what they did, the Montanas didn't get the benefit of the revenues from the sale. Wow. The people that pay for those now had the, uh, the, you know, a proper mindset to recapture those costs in rates. Mm -hmm. So it, for that reason alone, I think there are other reasons to say that there was pressure on rates, but uh, just trying to get um, cost recovery when you didn't have to do it by itself cause rates to go up, but there are many other aspects with deregulation, volatility. If we could have kept on to the cheap, uh, to this fifth cheapest asset base through regulation, um, Montanans I'm convinced would have been better off today. Now back to victims, uh, the closer you are to Butte, the more hurt you were because Butte, mm. um, I think it's important to point out that um, the power company's footprint was the uh, urban zones of Montana. It wasn't rural. And uh, the only big urban area I can think of, because it wasn't that big, was Kalispell. But Missoula, Bozeman, Helena, Great Falls, Billings, those were the uh, service areas. And then the far eastern was uh, Montana, Dakota Montana Utility, and they, they didn't want any part of Direct, so they were opted out, and the local co-ops, um, they were sort of caught in the middle. So if you were imbued, so the worst possible scenario for you under Direct was you worked for the power company, uh, you had your pension, you were so you so at the end, you are now paying a lot more for your electricity. You could well have lost your job if you had any Montana stock; it went belly up. And uh, your pension was uh, substantially um, depleted, rearranged, or whatever. Uh, so if you had a lot of value in, in retirement with Montana Power, you lost everything. Right. Yeah. It seemed like since we already had the, one of the lowest power bills in the country, it didn't make any sense to leave it up to the free market at that point in time. Uh, yeah, there's really only one way to go, and that was up for everybody's bills. Um, 
So what was the reaction of the legislature uh, during the time of the deregulation bill when it was first introduced? Yeah, you have you had a front row seat, right? Uh, as as one of the main people in dissent, what uh, we really wanted to get 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 your perspective on what was happening on the floor, but also behind the scenes. I mean, you you talked about how it was a very complicated bill that came before everyone. What what um, what was being said? What what can you what can you shed light on there? It was acknowledged by the Republican majority that it was a complicated bill that needed study, but that was just complete eyewash. The Republicans allowed the bill to be put into the Senate after the, the deadline for when bills had to go in. So they broke the rules. They basically, um, they didn't, they didn't allow the process as ordinarily take place. They jammed it through the, uh, the Republicans clearly were not interested in hearing the opponents on the bill. It was pretty apparent that it was a, a slam dunk, um, even though there was some lip service that it was a complicated bill that should be studied. But that's that was just lip service. The, uh, the Roscoe administration was all in. Uh, the power company was all in. Um, the power company believed its own. I think they believed... Um, um, that change was coming. What they really wanted was to tailor change. So it would best impact them regardless of the fate for the rest of us. But anyway, so the bill came in, uh, started in the Senate. Uh, most Democrats voted no, except for the Butte Democrats. They all voted. I think all of them voted yes. Mm. A company town. It's not, you know, not to be, uh, it was not unexpected. Uh, and I could be wrong there. It's been a long time. But anyway, um, in the House, uh, the Republicans set a very substantial majority in the House. They, uh, with the exception of Representative John Cobb, they all voted for it. Most Democrats, but still a number of Democrats, voted for the bill. Um, Butte again, Great Falls to some extent. A majority of Democrats voted against the bill. So the bill did pass. To me, the more surprising phenomenon is why didn't we see more of an outrage when the power company said they were going to sell all the assets? I mean, that was a real game changer. You know, they didn't say anything about selling assets and leaving the whole electric scene in, in, the, in the regular session. Um, I mean, it, it was huge front page news. I mean, it, Changed, you know, the the change of changing, you know, selling all those dams and impacting public access to all those rivers, uh, that sort of thing. That really, uh, I thought would have shaken up. I mean, it did cause a lot of consternation, but uh, but not enough to get the legislature to reassess and slow things down. Um, even though people like me did try twice to get the session, the legislature back into session, at least delay this phenomena and see what would happen. Yeah, slow it down. Sounds like a tough time to be on the legislature, um, trying to speak up, speak out against all those forces that are, you know, pushing something that's really not good for Montanans. Uh, so what was it like for you during that time being one of the only legislatures who openly spoke out strongly against the deregulation? Well, it didn't particularly bother me because I had mm-hmm. I, I I had a lot of conviction that, that I felt like I I knew what I was talking about. I felt like right. that uh, the whole 
proponents' arguments didn't didn't stand up to any close inspection at all. They talked about stranded costs. We had what we call stranded assets. The comparisons were not comparable. Uh, there was no underlying push, uh, regulatory major regulatory move by the feds. Uh, it, it, uh, there were there were national papers put out by by experts that said that electric deregulation would in general cause the average rate of uh, for, for Americans to pay the average rate. Yeah, you would think well, that if, would be if, convincing if, to some of the other legislatures. Yeah, but if you but if you follow this through, if the average rate turned out to be eight cents and you were paying thirteen cents in California, you love it. But if you're paying five cents in Montana and it goes to eight cents. You don't like that, yeah. Yeah, that adds <laughs> right? Up. Yeah, that's because that's, that's like what three divided by five is. Uh, that's a sixty percent increase. That's cr- that's unreal. Yeah, especially in a state so, like I, I think the the force that I clearly felt was the the immense um, influence of the power company. I mean, the power company probably enjoyed more respect and goodwill than any other institution in the legislature. I'm not sure there's anything comparable. I mean, you have to remember the power company had been a power company since, I don't know, 1910. So we were in like, what, our eighth decade. Uh, probably every gymnasium in the power company service area had a, had a scoreboard that you know brought to you by the power company or on the football field. They had so many. They had legis. They had so many legislators. They had legislators that were that were hired to lobby Republicans. They had certain legislators, uh, lobbyists who were paid only to lobby Democrats. Uh, they they had they bust in when they got the co-ops to uh, agree not to oppose and to be proponents of the bill because they would be unaffected. They they actually put uh, they brought in paper bus loads. Uh, they had uh, huge, uh, huge uh, resources. Um, they started the uh, Nights Under the Stars uh, concert right in my district in the, the Carroll College. Wow. <laughs> you know, uh, Concert Under the Stars brought to you by the Montana Power Company. I mean, they... Sounds nice. You know, the, the amount of goodwill they had was enormous. And so, uh, you know, it was a very respected institution and, and uh, went for kind of the proverbial juggler and got away with it. It was uh, unfortunately um, and probably a unique phenomena where the power company had thus all this goodwill on an issue that um, people don't think too much. You know, you get up and your powers are reliable and I mean, think about it. Um, in general, people are, do you want choice? Are you, are you pro-choice? Yeah. Uh, you know, those, a lot of people are, a lot of, you know, yeah, give you, you know, choice, you know, what could, what's, what's so bad. Right. Yeah. Uh, the problem with it, of course, is that at that higher level, when you start drilling down a little bit and you start trying to throw out skepticism, like I try to, uh, it, it just didn't catch fire enough. Uh, and it didn't catch fire enough. Even when the power company said, Oh, we've changed our minds. We're going to sell all these dams and all these power plants. And, and by 
absolute implication. We're going to put ourselves in play. We're going to put, uh, we're going to put all our employees in play. And of course, um, people, you know, they're busy with their ordinary lives. A lot of people didn't sort of, you know, make, follow the dots. Okay. So what does it mean for my retirement? What does it mean my job, my power bill? Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I think our institutions did fail us. I think the power company, um, sadly, was um, very short-sighted. They could have had it both. They could have had Touch America. They could have kept Touch America. They could have had the utility um, system. They could have had um, a guaranteed revenue stream. You know, they got it wrong. And the arguments they used to bring deregulus to Montana were really... um, they didn't hold up. They, you know, they used, they used facts to present untruths. You know, we have a big fancy word for that. It's, we call it dissembling. Dissembling is when you take facts to make a point that's wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Like I mean, choices yeah. are coming to Montana. Well, choice is only coming to Montana if you vote to have choice. Right. Right. Playing with language, I suppose. Yeah. There was a lot of that. Yeah. So I guess a lot of this stuff too, though, it's like until, um, until you are living in the future and you're seeing these downstream effects, it's still all in the hypothetical. Right. And so it's easy to believe whatever people are telling you, especially if it's Montana powers. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of your points is, is true. I mean, I think, I think it, I think it's uh, self-evidently true. People clearly did not feel that their current power bill was at risk of being much higher. Right. They didn't, you know, they didn't feel that risk. Yeah. Until there was a lot of opposition to, there was plenty of, there was quite a bit of support for the call for the special sessions. Senior citizens, uh, unions, environmental groups, uh, you know, I would call sort of the, the, most of the, uh, some of the association of churches, uh, the groups that typically represent, um, smaller communities of organizations as opposed to large industrial users and industrial groups. And, uh, and uh, yeah, they, that, though, all of those groups traditionally have less power, at least in Montana, than large industrial groups and the power company. Um, yeah, so back to the stranded costs. I'm thinking of okay. some future um, stranded costs that could possibly happen because Northwestern Energy in their 20-year energy procurement plan is wanting to invest billions in natural gas infrastructure in Montana in the early 2020s, uh, starting in 2022. But science and justice is just demanding a transition away from fossil fuels. So given the history of stranded assets, how do you think the public service commissioners should view the possibility of stranded assets from the proposed natural gas infrastructure in their decisions? Well, that's a big question and it has, has a couple of elements to it. So I, mm-hmm. let me try to unpack it a little bit. First of all, the notion of stranded asset and stranded cost goes away if you're still regulated. By definition, there's nothing stranded if a utility system is under government control through the PSC. Mm-hmm. So if the public service, so, uh, and pretty much today, what we have, we've gravitated mostly back to, an, to a regulatory environment. Mm-hmm. We don't have 
we don't have choice today. We have mostly it's all it's it's regulation, and the regulation we have is on the three components of, of electricity: the generation, transmission, and the actual distribution of power. Those are the three big legs to the stool for getting electricity in their homes. Right. Uh, but now you fast forward into the 21st century under uh, the whole notion of fossil fuels and the, the, the question, you know, your question is, um, should people pay for a new generation asset that's, uh, that's fired up by fossil fuel? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and if that's the question, um, and uh, it gets kind of complicated quickly because in the short term, it may be that the fossil fuel is cheaper. Although we are seeing, um, we, we've seen over the last 10 years, prices for renewables come way down. Right. Are they competitive? Um, I mean, here's the thing. In the last year, we are finally seeing um, major players in the world's capital acknowledging that uh, the capital markets are starting to wake up and starting to, to uh, worry about are they accurately pricing in climate change. You may have seen last week BlackRock, one of the largest uh, repositories of capital in the world. It's in the trillions. They've made a stand that says we're going to have to accept uh, the phenomena of climate change, uh, and we need to accept that, that it's going to disrupt capital. They're going to be winners and they're losers. Mm -hmm. And so getting back to whether you uh, get it into, um, into rate base, you know, for me personally, because I'm not running for the PSC and I don't know exactly my position, but I think that my position would be something like, we have a, we have a responsibility, we have a duty. Um, we, the world, the countries, the states, the communities, um, we need to start reducing uh, CO2 output uh, and we need to be, we, we need to acknowledge that the, uh, the consequences of not doing it, they may not be priced in today. Uh, but we're seeing, uh, almost on a daily basis, the, uh, the, uh, extreme variability, uh, ugly variability, uh, variability is not a strong enough word. The consequences of extreme climatic events. And um, how do we how do we not exacerbate those? Uh, right now, this current administration is doing well, not only nothing, but it is uh, is uh, is trying to roll roll it backward, being like uh, Uber denial. So, you know, I think a very good case can be made that we need to have a. Um, it's not just a bias. Uh, a a uh, to be proponents to reduce uh, the carbon footprint in Montana. Right. It seems like a disastrous time for Northwestern Energy to invest billions into 
more fossil fuel infrastructure in a time like this. And is that is that what you meant by stranded assets? Maybe not the um, the historical definition, but but if they mm-hmm. are able to um, proceed with their procurement plan, if they execute the right. idea of investing in natural gas uh, plants um, at this time, they could be uh, become stranded assets if at, at, in the future we decide as a society to regulate them harder and switch over to more and more generation that is not the fossil fuel? Well, yeah. I mean, now, so now you've gotten into, it's a little complicated for, uh, for, for the power company. And let me explain why the power company and not the, the Northwestern, uh, they have a phenomenon that most, um, publicly traded companies don't have. They have, they're a regulated utility. So if the PSC says okay to a fossil, you know, like a new natural gas fire generation plant, the PSC has the ability under the law to say, okay, you get to recover that cost in rates. And so your question, your sort of implicit question is, well, does that mean that at some point some market force may turn that into a liability that they can't do much about it, that, that they're stuck with it? And the question is, well, who gets stuck with it? The Montanans get stuck with it. Do the shareholders get stuck with it? And um, you know, is there a scenario where the stock price um, is such that um, that uh, that, it, it, that that's an economic hit to the shareholders? You know, there's various audiences that are potentially winners and losers. But it is true that I could paint you a scenario where dumping on a huge amount of uh, uh, carbon-producing assets gets to be kind of problematic because let's just let's just walk this through. Let's say that uh, the, that there is a some sort of agreement that we're going to start taxing those, and uh, and citizens say, well, we don't want to pay that higher tax, and then you have then you have the power company sort of caught in the middle. Because the PSA says, well, we're not going to raise. How do we not raise the cost um, uh, onto our uh, ratepayers? But we have to pay uh, carbon tax. So whose hide will it come out of? It'll come out of the stockholders' hide. Mm-hmm. So you see how this can bleed out in various ways. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of where I was thinking with the stranded assets, if, if for the future, is that a lot of presidential candidates and other politicians in Congress and so on are calling for a ban on fracking. So I'm imagining Northwestern Energy spending these billions on natural gas infrastructure and then in putting that cost into the ratepayers, and then eventually there will be a ban on fracking. And then I could see that's all of the infrastructure for natural gas being stranded assets in that sense of the term in the future. It's kind of what I was getting at there mm. too. Right. I mean, you're, you're more specific, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I, I, I don't pretend to have a good feel for the specifics, um, but I think in general, uh, I think that there is, there's probably more risk in fossil fuels for the company, certainly for society mm-hmm. than not. And that the unintended, the, the consequences of being overly invested, especially in new investments where you need to depreciate and get it back, um, as the uh, as 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 people's response 
becomes more and more we need to stop um, putting carbon in. And by the way, this is no longer theoretical or just uh, values or bias. This is this gets more real by the day. I mean, BlackRock has said last week, BlackRock controls trillions of dollars in assets. They're taking the extra step that they're, they're going to reduce uh, how much holdings they have in their various portfolios with uh, coal. Um, and they're saying as an investor, the investing public is at risk of having huge reallocations of how we value companies, uh, that'll have an impact on any company that has a big balance sheet of, uh, of, uh, of carbon emitting assets. And, uh, yeah. And potentially, uh, could the power company sort of quote unquote be stuck with them and not, ne- not necessarily stranded cost, but I've already sort of, re- I can repeat myself. They could potentially face a situation where, they have this um, bad pun dinosaur <laughs> and they're trying to get the rest of us to pay up for it. And we said, well, we told you we didn't want to pay for it. And now you're forcing us. We don't want it in our rate base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's some, a lot of stuff to consider there. And it, it could even be, it seems like it's even a bad choice for these companies um, to invest in any fossil fuel infrastructure, even though they could get short-term profits. It just, Seems like a lot of a lot of risk there. Um, so I guess for our last question for you, David, I was wondering: Should the Public Service Commission have spoken up more strongly in opposing the deregulation at the time? Yeah, they got it wrong. I mean, there were um, sadly mostly, if not all, Democrats on it, and uh, there were Democrats who voted who who voted to support it. Um. You know, I think in hindsight, most of them would acknowledge that they made a mistake. Right. It didn't help that uh, we didn't get stronger support by the PSC. Um, it was it was kind of mealy mouth. Um, I mean, you know, to me, it just seemed so clear that uh, why would we want to risk, uh, you know, you, you know you have cheap power. Uh, that was one of the things we, that's one of the things, as I said, 25 years ago, Montana has two virtues we ought to sell to uh, corporate America. One, we've got an educated public and we have cheap electricity. Come to Montana. Why would you put the second one in play? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, the PSC could have done a better job as an institution uh, to, uh, to try to say the risks, the risks just, they're not worth it. It's an excellent point. And I, I guess I, I was just thinking maybe one more thing. In the 2010 PBS documentary that discusses the role of ALEC and Enron in the uh, state Senate bill, uh, okay. had, uh, yeah, discusses that. has it been overstated, uh, the role of Enron companies? And, uh, or were there other proponents that needed to be spotlighted? Um, I think you've talked about the role of Goldman Sachs. Well, I, others, uh, including the documentary, uh, try to paint Enron as the major villain for electric deregulation in Montana. And I actually don't agree with that. I think the major villains were the power company 
Oh, wow. And, and with its financial advisor, its longstanding con, uh, financial advisor was Goldman Sachs. And I think those are the two that really spearheaded electric deregulation. Enron could well have been here. I never met anybody from Enron, but um, it, there are two facts that lead me to believe that Enron was a small player. Fact number one is that they spent millions of dollars to have people sign up for electric choice in California, and essentially nobody signed up. Fact number two, they were on public land records that they were not going to try to bring choice to, uh, they weren't going to spend any money to bring choice to Montana. And I think that my, my, cause I wasn't at anybody's board meeting, but I think my own bias, uh, my supposition, I think is accurate that it's, it's the, the power company that got all caught up with touch America and, 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 uh, believed in uh, trying to get ahead of what they thought was going to happen, even though if they just sat down and asked themselves, you know, this change will only come if you if you if you force it. If you don't force it, then you don't have this change. And then I think the pot, the Goldman Sachs was whispering in their ear, "You got this stock price that just stays at around twenty two dollars a share. Uh, we can help you unlock the hidden multiple by having direct." And of course, the stock price did shoot up, but then it went to zero. <laughs> right. So somebody made. But, that you know, happen. Goldman still got their tens of millions of dollars in fees. Most people, and I think corporate America, hopefully has learned this lesson. Wall Street is about one thing. It's doing a deal. That's all they're interested in. Yeah. I mean, they want to do a deal. Right. And they get paid for it. You just have to always keep them, you know, if you need the deal done, that's a good place to go. But if, (laughs) but you never know if you're the, uh, if you're, if you're uh, eaten or being eaten and Goldman will have a Goldman, uh, they don't care. You, they'll eat you as a client. Yeah. So you're, you're saying that, you know, you, you have to be a fool to think that they have, you know, purely uh, altruistic ends, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, they want to make money for Montana power, but they didn't, they weren't being, they, Goldman wasn't being paid to step back and say, so where is this company like to be in 10 years? You know, uh, hang on. They don't get paid for just saying, don't do anything. Yeah. Right. It's the, the company's job to envision the future and, and, and actuate it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for all of the lessons that you've uh, portrayed today and, and for talking about your experience in, in the process of uh, being a legislature during deregulation and um, for also speaking uh, a good amount to, uh, to the investments that we can be making in the future and, and, uh, and for probing that with us. Really appreciate your time, David. Well, okay, Ryan and Max and Daniel, uh, best wishes to your efforts, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, thank you, David. Yeah, thank you so much, David. Right. It was awesome. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, have a good yeah. afternoon. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah.